looking at the problem of humanity and trying to, to, to figure out how to solve it, author Richard Dawkins wrote this in his book, The Selfish Gene. He says, let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we're born selfish. Let us understand that our own selfish gene, what our own selfish genes are up to because we may then, at least, have the chance to upset their designs, something no other species has ever aspired to do. So he uses this word altruism. Some of you may have heard it. Some of you may be familiar with it. Some less so. And what altruism is, it's this principle of unselfish concern or devotion to the greater good of humanity. It's unselfishly working for the welfare of others. To live an altruistic life is to live a life more concerned with the well-being of someone else than the well-being of yourself. And actually what Dawkins just communicated is, is really a biblical concept. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's this, this, uh, this tension here, because what, what Dawkins talks about almost sounds exactly like we, what we just read in Philippians. However, Dawkins is a militant atheist. Um, his most popular book is called The God Delusion, wherein he calls anybody who believes in a higher power delusional and crazy and weak-minded. His even more aggressive book title is called God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All of Fiction which is the most insulting title on so many different levels. But Dawkins and other secular humanists, they look at the world and they see the altruistic way of life as a solution for what ails humanity. You just, just think about what's wrong with our world today and what do we need to fix it. They say we need people who live lives of, lives of generosity and altruism. But the problem is, from the, the perspective of secular humanism, the perspective of atheism, there's no unstained motive for love. There's no pure generosity. And that's because outside of Christian love, there's no such thing as altruism. There's no such thing as selfless concern for the well-being of other people. The best altruism is a Christian love. To truly understand what it means to love fully and live generously and offer selflessly, you have to understand love is put forth in the Bible. And so we're going to unpack what that means tonight as we are in Romans chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you could open to that. It'll also be up on the screens um, and in your phones where the Bible lives now. Uh, but what we're going to see tonight is this, is to live Christianly, Kind of the, the theme of what we're looking at in Romans is learning to live. How does what we believe shape our lives? Because if what we believe doesn't shape our lives, we don't really believe it. So if we think we're Christian, to live Christianly, you must have a Christ-informed definition of love and a love-informed urgency in your life. Christ-informed definition of love and a love-informed urgency in your life. That means if believers understand Christ-like love, and Christ-like living, we'll be able to live out what Dawkins hoped for in ways that he himself would have never been able to do. And so that's what I propose to, to show us today in Romans 13. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we, we thank you for giving us so much more than a word in love. 
giving us so much more than an urban dictionary uh, explanation of what it means to love or to be loved. And Lord, we thank you that as we are in this passage in Romans 13, how it coincides um, so wonderfully with this Easter season that we find ourselves in the middle of. With Good Friday um, coming tomorrow and Resurrection Sunday um, in a few days, Lord, we ought to be thoughtful of how the cross of Christ influences the way we think, the way we live. And more importantly, Lord, uh, what this passage talks about is how that belief changes the way we interact in the public sphere. So we pray that happens well tonight. Pray for clarity, um, and we pray for us to have a better definition of love. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, two weeks ago, we looked at how Paul expects us to live in the face of people who persecute us, right? Uh, Noah Lee was here when he, he talked about that. Last week, we looked at how we're to live under those who rule over us, when Paul talked about governing authorities. And this week, we're going to look at how we ought to live with people beside us. How we ought to live with the likes of everyone else. And we see this in Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one to anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So if, you, if you're in your Bibles right now, um, and you look up to verse 7, you see kind of this, this string of thought that Paul's putting forward. He says, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then the very next word is, owe nothing to anyone except love. Pay this debt, pay this debt, pay this debt, pay this debt, pay this debt. And now there's pay nothing but love. And you see, this year, I filed my taxes. It's nice to be a pastor with a family and file taxes, okay? Uh, I, I don't actually have to pay anything. But in terms of what the government, how the government, how Uncle Sam and I stand, I'm in the clear. I've settled my debt with the government, and I don't need to do anything else. I'm not indebted to them. Nothing's required to them of me. Um, I'm set up to do auto pay with Northwestern Energy at my house uh, because I put it on my credit card and I get points. It's fantastic. And so I have paid my utility bill. So my utility bill is expecting nothing from me tomorrow. And I have no obligation to give them anything tomorrow. Yesterday, I told my lovely wife, who came here tonight, I told her that I loved her. But today, that debt hasn't gone away. It's not that I told my wife I love her and now I get a pass and I never have to tell her I love her, act like I love her, show her that I love her. You see, what Paul is saying is that love is a debt that never goes away. There'll be a point where we stand right with men, we stand right with our debt, we stand right, stand right with our financial obligations, but we will always be under the debt of love. And actually the word debt is, is, is better translated obligation. We'll always be obligated to love one another. That's because as we looked at last week, we were made as social people. God created Adam, and then from Adam he created Eve, and then he's like, make babies. And that's how people were made. You were made, your parents had that awkward conversation with you one day where they, they took you aside and maybe brought you out to ice cream and you had the worst conversation you've ever had as a child about how the birds and the bees and where babies came from. And God could have, in an, uh, I'm sorry if that rocked your world, Jackson. Um, God could have, in a completely unconnected string of events, said, if you want children, 
go to a vending machine, put in six coins, and out will come a child. But what he did is he chose to make us family. He chose to make us interconnected people. He chose to make us naturally members of society. So when people like Dawkins or artists or celebrities are lobbying for better ways to love and get along with each other, what they're really yielding to is the subtle reality of the image of God in each of us. We know we ought to, right? There's that obligation word. We ought to get along. We ought to love one another. We ought to be selfless. We ought to be generous. And we have this innate burden over us. And that unspoken debt that each of us knows we have to society is there because God has wired it into our hearts. There's no general class that all of our ancestors went through at one point that said, guys, if this is going to be a good society, we got to figure out how to love each other. We know we're supposed to love each other because that's the way God created us. The problem then is, what does this look like? What does it look like to love one another? And why is it that over the course of human history, there have been billions and billions of humans who have lived all with this same burden to love, and yet we haven't found a solution? You turn on the news, and you see stories of lovelessness. You see stories of hate crimes. You see stories of selfish, evil people doing wicked, evil things. And that's because love, it needs a definition. To just talk about love in general, it's not really helpful. Donald Trump's love, Taylor Swift's love, Nicholas Sparks' love, they all use the same word. But if you just look at what those people post on Twitter or what they've done in history, all of their love looks different. But they're using the same word. At the base of their love, the problem isn't the word. The problem is what they see the substance of love is. What, cons uh, what, what does love consist of in their minds? What shapes their love? What's the boundaries of their love? What's the action of their love? And this is, as Paul has given us this obligation, this is what Paul wants to correct in us first and foremost. Not only does he want to point out the obvious, hey, you should get along with your brother and sister. Hey, you should be a good member of society. He wants us to know, and this is our first point tonight, he wants us to know the substance of love. What is the substance of Christian love? So we're going to look at verse 8 again, and we're going to read the passage Jordan actually just read for us. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments, so he's referencing there the Ten Commandments, um, they're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So Paul gives us two relationships that love has here that are very important to the substance of love. He talks about love's relationship to the law and love's relationship to others. Twice in this passage, Paul says that if we love another, we've fulfilled the law. What does he mean when he says that? When Paul says, when you love one another, you're fulfilling the law. What Paul's actually doing when he's using that legal language is he's describing what's wrong with humanity. What Richard Dawkins refers to as the selfish gene in his book, the Bible refers to as a dead heart. 
And the thing that provokes that dead heart, the thing that lets us see our own dead heart is the law. This thing we saw in the Old Testament, which is like a measuring rod of who is good. If God is a perfect God, he says, this is the way a perfect people will live. These are the things that you will do. And the problem is, is when we stood up to the, it must be God's, you must be this tall to ride marker. None of us were tall enough. None of us were good enough. None of us were quality enough. And that's because the law and to view your life as something I could do that I have power to achieve, that I am the center of all that is good. The law stands only to condemn you, not qualify you. The law is pass-fail. If you have done something wrong, you're disqualified from it. You're not a good person. You're not a perfect person. And so the law helps us understand this obligation to love because not only are we obligated to it, but we're burdened by it, right? You, and let me give you an example. How many of you guys have walked downtown and the homeless guy's right there? And so uh, I just met Mimi, who's from Brooklyn. Maybe it's different in Brooklyn or in Staten Island where you just tune out homeless people. But in Missoula, they're just like sparse enough to where we still encounter them. And when you walk by one, you're not like, oh man, I got to get home to my plasma TV. You're like, hey, I feel really bad not giving that guy something, but I don't want to do it, right? We feel this guilt when we don't do something with homeless people. We feel this guilt, and that's because not only do we have a debt that we know is there, but we know that debt often makes us feel condemned because we know it's right to love people, and it's wrong to not love people. And look at how Paul talks about this failure that the law produces in us. In Romans 7, same book, just a little earlier on, same letter, uh, he says this in verses 8 through 11. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so Paul is saying, when I saw that law, I saw that selfishness in my heart. I knew that guilt, and I knew that guilt ruled my life. So for Paul, this law he's talking about, this being fulfilled somehow in chapter 13, it was a sign of death. It wasn't a sign of life. It wasn't a sign that he's a good person. It was a sign of my failure. And yet here, five chapters later, Paul says, if we love, we've fulfilled the law. He summarizes the law. The Ten Commandments are like the great summary of the law. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself is the summary. If you do that, you have fulfilled the law. My question is, what happened between Paul's view of the law in sin in Romans 7 and Paul's view of the law in Romans 13? The law brought me death and I was selfish. I had covetousness. And here I'm loving and fulfilling the law, right? When we look at that, those are communicating two different themes. But in the middle of that is this beautiful passage in Romans 8. Romans 8 verses 3 through 6. And this is what brings the change. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. That requirement that we failed, that righteousness that we lacked, 
Jesus fulfilled it in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set their mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So what happens between Romans 7 and Romans 13 is the gospel of Romans 8. Romans 13 is building off the foundation of Christ fulfilling the law. And in this case, when Paul says, if you love, you fulfilled the law, he's ultimately pointing back to Christ. Christ loved those who were his enemy. Christ loved those who were far off from him. Christ loved those who murdered him on a tree. In Christ, we see the greatest act of altruism. Christ selflessly offered himself as a sacrifice for the greater good of humanity. There is nothing more altruistic than that, than that. And not only did he die for them, like he needed to just prove that he loved him, but he died for their sins. He died for that legal failure that they endured by not being a perfect people because they were sinful. He, was, he didn't just die, he was punished. He paid their legal debt. And the result was what we just read in Romans, that we've been transferred from this walking in flesh, walking in death, as Paul said, under the law, to walking in the spirit in Christ. There's this transformation that happens where we once walked this way, and now we walk this way. There's a newness of life, something new we can love in a way we were never capable of loving. And that's because the ability to truly love, the ability to love in the way that Paul's talking about in Romans 13, a love which fulfills the law has to be based off of the substance of the gospel of Christ. The substance of Christian love isn't that we're great lovers. It's that we're loved by a Christ who loved us selflessly. Jesus defines true love. You want to know what true love is? Don't look at pop culture. Don't read books. Don't read romance novels. Don't watch chick flicks. Look at the cross. The cross is the substance and definition of love. The world's greatest act, unrivaled, can't be repeated and stands above all things. We opened tonight by looking at the relationship between Richard Dawkins' quote and that passage in Philippians. They sound really similar, but I want to go back and I want to read that full Philippians passage and see what is it that bases that selfless act in Philippians 2, where we see this, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How do we love selflessly? How are we able to fulfill what, what Paul just called us to do? By looking at what is already ours in Christ, who though the, he was in the form of God, did now not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, all of what love is and all of the response of love 
has to be based on the truest love in Christ. You know, I've, I observed something. Um, I actually, so I don't consider myself a fairly clever guy, but I was really proud of what I clevered inside my own head this morning as I was sitting writing this because I was asking myself questions. Preachers ask themselves dumb questions when they're writing things like, what is love? And so I had my little notebook out and I just started writing things that I thought love was, that we qualified it. Um, and what I realized is our problem with love isn't that we don't have a definition of love. It's not that love is amorphous and malleable and each of us just have a different idea of what love is. That's the result of the greater problem. The greater problem of what I realized even in my own heart today is that we've subtly replaced the definition of what is love with the experience of what it feels like to be loved. Think about it. The problem is when we try to answer what is love, we answer with the experience of what it feels like to be loved. Ask people what it's like to be loved. It's to be accepted, to be made much of, to be treasured, to be cared for, to be supported, to be made safe. And those are all good things and those are all great things, but that's not love. We, but what's happened is we've become so twisted and selfish that in order to define love, we can only communicate what it feels like to be loved. When someone asks you what is love, we typically answer in a selfish way of how am I loved? How can you love me? But love on its own is a commitment to caring for, supporting, nurturing, and treasuring someone else regardless of if that love is reciprocated. And, and I can tell you as a parent, often uh, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, often my greatest acts of love towards my children are things through which I feel the least loved. I can turn off a TV show my son is watching because he needs to not just sit in front of the TV like a vegetable. And I'm doing that not because it's easier to entertain my son, but I'm doing that because I feel like that's what's best for him. But you would think I just crushed all of his hopes and dreams. My, my daughter, Adley, would love to, and she has at times, my wife is here, so plug your ears, Sarah. She has at times gotten access to knives. Not too sharp. And she loved those knives. And in love, I took those away from her. And she didn't say, thank you, Dad, for caring so much for me. She screamed at me. <laughs> my son, when I care for him, has, has growled and stomped his feet and scowled at me when I was doing things that I thought were ultimately loving towards him. But that's because true love is unconcerned with reciprocation. And the only place we truly see that is in the gospel. That true love is the love of Easter. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath payment for our sins. In Romans it says, um, 
Christ, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God that he didn't wait in heaven to feel loved by us before he intervened with our problem. You see, tomorrow we will celebrate the, the, the memorialization of Jesus dying on a cross for our sins. And Sunday we will gather to celebrate his resurrection and his victory over sin and death. But here's the thing. On Good Friday, when Jesus died on a tree outside the gates, Jesus died not giving the people what they wanted. What the people wanted is they wanted a physical king, an earthly king, to start a rule right there to kick out Rome, to right all the wrongs, someone immediately to punish those who had afflicted them, someone to bring them into the spotlight, someone who stood for what they stood for, who gave them what they felt they deserved. To be loved was to have a physical king over them, giving them security and safety and, and, and weapons and wealth and, and treasure and prestige. But when Jesus died on the cross bearing the insults of the crowds that once followed him. He didn't give them what they wanted. He gave them what they needed. He gave them a savior. And never in the life history of humanity, <coughs> never was anyone hated as much for doing the greatest act of love. Do you understand that? In the cross, we see true love. And at that moment, Jesus was never more despised. As he bore the sins of those who would one day believe in him and the scorn of those who would only mock him. You see, only when we understand love's relationship to the law, of Christ fulfilling that law, of Christ faming and <coughs> constituting our love, only then can we understand how to love one another. Because only when we see what Christ has done to love us can we adequately love others without the selfish interest of only having a definition of love which communicates how we're loved. Only then can we say, this is what love is, that I would lay down my life for someone who is against me. I would lay down my life for someone who stands opposed to me. I would lay down my life for someone not because they're worthy of merit, but because they're worthy of love. We see this in Romans 13.10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. It's interesting when we see that. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. We've all probably heard that. Love does all sorts of things like that. But what the cross teaches us, and this is a very important distinction, what the cross teaches us is that love doing no wrong is not equal to love always saying yes to people's felt needs. Because the problem is, oftentimes our felt needs are not real needs. True love captures the whole of who we are through Christ and pushes us to love in places where the world stops loving. It says no when the world says yes, and that's because true love, gospel love, knows the gravity of what's at stake. It knows that 
Love isn't something that the world can be disconcerned with. Love isn't something that just simply is nice. It knows that love is essential. And in storytelling and in, even in human history, um, there's this, this thing that all dramas include. It's called the inciting incident, right? Have you guys heard that maybe in film classes? Um, and what the inciting incident is, is it's the moment which sets the whole story in motion. It's the moment that all the action in the rest of the story stems and revolves around. And one thing I've noticed is that most movies or books actually have two inciting incidents. They have the initial plot incident. But then anything that has kind of a romantic twist to it or a love aspect, it always has love's inciting incident. And we all see that. We all know that. It's the moment where love is made aggressive and active. Where it once could have been passive and hidden and this awkward tension between two people. Love's inciting incident is where we stop thinking about love as equivalent to being loved and start thinking of love as a commitment to give instead of simply to take. It's the moment where you always hear, you came back. It's the moment that sends the hero back into the battle to rescue his lover. It's the explosion that shakes the stressed relationship back into a selfless point so that we sprint back into the wreckage to grab the one we love. It's the faint screams for help which force us back into the fray when we thought we had removed ourselves from it. And for us as believers, those two inciting incidents are the same. It's the cross of Jesus. You see, on the cross of Jesus, we see the promise of salvation. But we also see the guarantee of judgment. You see, on the cross, we see that those who believe in Christ have died with Christ. We are hidden with him in his death and in his resurrection. But those who fail to believe in Jesus will die outside of Christ and without Christ. As a cross stands as a beacon of salvation, it sounds, stands equally as tall as a beacon of damnation. And Paul ties this love passage to this eternal reality. And this is Paul's um, moment of love's inciting incident. Our second point, Romans 13, 11 through 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So why do we need to know how to love? Why does the substance of your love need to be Christ? Because we all love in different ways. We all think we love. We all have an idea of love. But why is it that I'm standing up here saying that the center of your love. The substance of your love must be Christ, meaning that the thing you do towards your mom, the things you do towards your siblings, the things you do towards your boyfriends or girlfriends or potential spouses or even acts of community service must be grounded, not only familiar with, but rooted in the gospel event. Why do I say that needs to happen? Because in order for you to love well, you need to know that for your sake, and for the sake of others, judgment hangs over our heads. That the end is near. Paul said it 2,000 years when he wrote, 
We're living in the last days. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. So we live today under a different sort of urgency. Paul says the time for us to hide in the shadows ended when Christ rose from the dead. When Christ rose out of that grave, we rose out of the shadows of society. We no longer stand at a distance hoping that the world will figure out on its own because when Jesus told as his parting commands to his people, um, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's not a call to hang in the shadows. That's a call to move forward, to engage culture, whether it's hostile, whether it's comfortable, or whether it's generous. That was a call to move forward forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the hope that this dying world needs. We hear the screams of the girl we've spent the whole movie flirting with, and you stand seeing the impending doom with the choice of, is it worth going back? We have the answer to Dawkins' own delusion. We know the gospel of Jesus Christ, which will save souls and will be heard among the nations. See, in Spider-Man, one of my son's favorite books we have is Spider-Man. And in it, Uncle Ben gives one of the more famous lines um, kind of in superhero history. With great power comes great responsibility. Well, for Christians, as believers, with a great gospel comes great urgency. Because we know that this life is not the life. And we know that God has called us to be ambassadors, given us to what he calls the ministry of reconciliation, of loving others with the gospel, though culture and others may be hostile towards you. And in light of this urgency and this imminent uh, salvation, Paul now turns away from how we love others, and he actually addresses how you live. It seems unconnected, but let's look at it. Verses 13 through 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul's logic goes, you should love the truest love is in Jesus. Um, the truest love frees you from the law because Christ frees us from the law. And because you yourself are aware of judgment, and because you've been set free in Christ Jesus, because you're called to walk according to a newness of life, not old life in the flesh, you seek to throw off the garments of sin in your life. You seek to distance yourself from them. And Paul is really stressing this two-worldness of our existence. Cast off darkness, put on light. Put off works of evil, put on Christ. And there are two reasons why Paul is giving us these personal commands in this text. The first is, um, th this is of greatest benefit to you as believers. Whether the, you think so or not, whether the world confirms it or not, the greatest joy, the life of least resistance from a worldly perspective, is a life of obedience to what Jesus has called us to do. That's the safest place for you to be. 100%. Paul's writing this to you, not because he's legalistic. He's writing this to you because he's fighting for your joy. He's actually fighting for your freedom, not for your boundaries. But there's a dichotomy there, 
Oftentimes we equate freedom with a lack of boundaries. That's not true. Freedom is bound, okay? That's a side trail. Anyway, back to my notes. Um, and, and so many times there are people and there are Christians who believe in Jesus. And I'm sure you guys have seen this in your friends and your roommates on campus. Maybe even it's you in here today who claim to be a follower of Jesus, but they fail to put off the things that Jesus killed on the cross. They fail to change. They fail to treasure differently. And what that means is they're functionally living in unbelief that Christ really shone his light on those things. It's like people going to eating and eating at McDonald's seven days a week and being like, oh, this really isn't that bad for me. We know it's bad. You're just refusing to believe it. We know that's not what you should eat, but it's easy and it tastes good. There are many people who call themselves children of the light, but they actually live as creatures of the night. Paul tells us to put off sin because it's what's best for you. But the secondary reason is Paul knows that you will not fully be able to love others if you're consumed by your own desires. Put off sin. Leave no room for its desires. Why is it important for you to grow in Christ-likeness? It's not because Paul is about legalistically changing the way you live. It's because Christianity drenches the whole of our lives in the altruistic, life-changing salvation of Jesus Christ. It changes everything for the sake of us. God's deeply utilitarian, okay? The same salvation, the same gospel changes you for your whole Christian life, but it also changes other people as they see the glory of God being what uh, Paul says, uh, Christ formed in you. I knew this one girl who claimed to be a Christian, but she lives like and hung out with exclusively non-believer friends. And I asked this person, I said, what, what are you doing right now. What are you doing with your friends? And her response was, I, I just love them and I don't want to leave them. And they know, they know I'm different, but ultimately I want to be with them. I said, well, what do you mean you're different? Well, they know I love differently. They know I, I'm not going to gossip around them. I'm not going to stab them in the back. I'm going to be a good friend. So there are a lot of people who are good friends. That doesn't make you unique. And what I told her by standing on texts like these is she claims to be a Christian. I said, you feel like you're loving your friends. But there's nothing more unloving you can do for that group of people than to show them there's no distinction between the Christ of the gospel and a life of sin. You're literally loving your friends to death. But what happened was she was scared to, to engage that because when she moved towards that, she wouldn't feel loved. But that's not the substance of our love. That's not what drives us in our actions, in our thoughts, or in our cultural engagement. You see, when we're consumed with the flesh, we, like Richard Dawkins alluded to, are being ruled by a selfish gene. We're living in the death of sin. Dead men don't love. They don't. People outside of Christ are incapable of bringing any sort of altruistic anything to this world because they're dead. Okay? 
That's why they can't do it. But when we put on Jesus Christ, we not only begin to wage a war against the desires of sin, but we begin to fight for true love showing up in our lives. And that's because the gospel produces innately in us this last point, a lovely apologetic. When we are consumed with love, our defense is our love. And our love isn't just pandering to anybody who comes our way and saying, you're right and we love you anyway. Our love is rooted in the countercultural, offensive gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we're committed to putting off sin, we're practicing an aggressive form of love. A love which endures and stands up to any definition culture gives. The interesting thing, these two verses, Romans 13, verses 13 through 14, play a huge role in Christian history. So around the 5th century, uh, there, is this, this, there, there sat this guy under a tree. And this guy was raised um, by a Christian family. He ran away from home, um, went and got educated, became a lawyer, became really successful, had some mistresses, threw his faith aside, wanting nothing to do with God, um, had a kid at age 16, um, had a bunch of sexual escapades uh, during that time, and he sat kind of blindly at the base of this tree. And he heard over the, there's this wall, and he heard in this yard next to them these children playing and singing. What they were singing, they were singing, take up and read, take up and read. So this guy reached over and he saw his, his Bible or a Bible. I don't know how this Bible got there. But he said, because he's kind of superstitious at that time, a lot of people were superstitious. He said, maybe this is a sign from God that I should take up and read. So he opened his Bible and he began to read. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And in that moment, this man saw a drastic need for Jesus. He saw he needed to have his life changed into the person of this Jesus, and he described his heart as being flooded by the light of faith. And in that moment, Augustine of Hippo was converted. And Augustine, maybe St. Augustine, no one knows how to say his name, but St. Augustine was converted in that moment and went on to be one of, if not the most formative Christian thinker in all of human history. And we too may model the grace that Augustine received as we seek to supplement our message of love with a life of love. Because seeing the need and seeing the change is equally loving. When Paul called his disciple Timothy to refute doctrine, false doctrine, a culture promoting lies and hate, he says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here's the thing. We live in a war, in our world has always been anti-Christian. By the grace of God, America has been pro, if not just nominally Christian for most of its history. By God's same grace, it's trending in the other direction now. 
But what you see on the screen is that a sincere faith produces a loving lifestyle which engages culture. If you don't have a love which pushes you to stand up for the gospel, you don't have the sincere faith of the gospel. And if you think you have the sincere faith of the gospel, but you're scared to love like Christ loved because you're scared of how people will respond to you, you don't have a sincere faith. So I pray for us as GCF in our puberty years where we've graduated everybody, we've got a crop of underclassmen. This logic of gospel-centered love is going to be what converts people. And if we all model this, we're not going to just get what typically happens at college ministries where you get Christian transfer. People who went to another Christian ministry find out this is the cool and hopping in one. Maybe I wasn't preaching that night and they heard about it and they came. Um, and they show up here and we just fill this room with more Christians. That's not what we want. What we want is we want our love to lead us to evangelize and have conversations with our roommates, our friends, and our coworkers because we see the urgency of the gospel and we know the only change this world will see is when they see Jesus as the only selfless sacrifice for the good of all humanity. And when we do that well, we will endure hardship and scorn, whippings, insults, persecutions for the sake of Christ. For when we are weak, then we are strong. Let's pray.